You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. for tuning in to episode number 33 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In our last episode, Abraham Lincoln became President of the United States on March 4, 1861, and inherited the secession crisis. The most sensitive and potentially explosive issue facing Lincoln was the possession of federal properties within the seceded states. Before his inauguration, as southern states withdrew from the Union, they had demanded, in accordance with their newly declared sovereignty and independence, the surrender of all federal installations inside them. This included military posts, forts, arsenals, customs houses, and post offices. In most cases, the local officials, many of them southerners, complied with the secessionist demands. In a few spots, however, loyal U.S. Army officers refused to do so. One of those was Lieutenant Adam J. Slemmer, the commanding officer at Fort Pickens, which guarded the entrance to Pensacola Harbor in western Florida. Another officer who refused to surrender was Major Robert Anderson, the commanding officer of Fort Sumter, located at the birthplace of secession, Charleston, South Carolina. Lincoln's predecessor, President James Buchanan, rejected demands for Sumter's surrender made by commissioners from South Carolina. Buchanan instead dispatched an unarmed steamer, the Star of the West, with provisions and reinforcements for Anderson. When that ship was fired upon and driven off by South Carolina shore batteries on January 9, 1861, the lame duck president chose not to retaliate or regard the incident as an act of war. Buchanan had denounced secession, but he claimed he had no power to stop slave states from leaving the Union. Buchanan had put his hopes in Congress, asking for the adoption of yet another great political compromise that would placate the South and prevent or limit secession. But while both the Senate and House had appointed committees to study the feasibility of such a move, in the end, no middle ground could be found. After decades of appeasing pro-slavery interest, the politics of compromise between the North and South had finally given way to the politics of confrontation. And so Buchanan fretted, but failed to act. In his remaining days in office, he refused to exercise decisive leadership with regard to the escalating crisis. After declining to retaliate for the attack on the Star of the West, the lame duck president sat quietly and bided his time until the new president was sworn in. James Buchanan simply wanted to escape from office without further incident. When Abraham Lincoln became president of the United States on March 4, 1861, and inherited the problem, 
he appeared to have no specific program for diffusing the ongoing crisis. But in his inaugural address, Lincoln set forth certain broad principles by which he would be guided. In his inaugural address, Lincoln asserted his conviction that the Union is permanent, secession is anarchy, and violence in the cause of secession is insurrection. He said he intended to execute the laws of the Union in all the states and to, quote, hold, occupy, and possess, end quote, the federal properties. But Abraham Lincoln again reassured the South that he would not interfere with slavery where it was already legal, and he appealed to the citizens of the seceded states by promising not to assail them and saying there would be no conflict unless they began it. But in light of the sensitive and potentially explosive state of affairs at the Pensacola and Charleston forts, the most ominous words in Abraham Lincoln's speech were his declaration to hold, occupy, and possess the federal properties in the seceded states. How this was to be done, whether by force or diplomacy, he didn't say. By the time Abraham Lincoln took the oath of office on March 4th in Washington, D.C., the Confederate States of America had already been an ongoing concern for nearly a month. Back in episode number 25, we talked about how, at the beginning of February 1861, delegates from the seceding states had met in Montgomery, Alabama, and formed a southern slaveholding republic. On February 8th, the Montgomery Convention had adopted the Provisional Confederate Constitution. The next day, February 9th, they selected Jefferson Davis of Mississippi to be the first president of the Confederate States of America. And then on February 18th, Davis was duly inaugurated in front of the Alabama State Capitol building as provisional president of the CSA. Davis and the rest of the Confederate leadership faced a monumental task in getting their new government up and running, but above all other concerns loomed the shadow of Fort Sumter. Jefferson Davis and the other Confederate leaders were anxious to take the matter out of the hands of South Carolina Governor Francis W. Pickens. The Confederate leadership viewed Pickens as a bit of a loose cannon and wanted to take management of the crisis out of his hands as soon as possible. To that end, on February 15th, the Provisional Confederate Congress authorized the President to take all necessary steps to acquire possession of the forts in Charleston and Pensacola either through negotiation or force. Jefferson Davis duly sent a copy of the resolution to Governor Pickens, who welcomed its arrival and was relieved that responsibility for the crisis was no longer his. For all of Pickens' bluster, since December he had actually been attempting to walk a fine line between, on one side, the urgent calls of fire-eaters demanding an immediate assault on Sumter, and on the other side, his knowledge that South Carolina's military was not up to the task. So the informal truce that had been in effect since the Star of the West incident had served Pickens well, for it allowed South Carolina to work on strengthening the fortifications around Sumter, while it also allowed the governor to bide his time until the new Confederate government could take up responsibility for the crisis. And so the weight of responsibility for the crisis shifted from Governor Pickens' shoulders onto those of Jefferson Davis. Davis knew that the CSA was woefully unprepared for war, but he also realized that the continued presence of federal garrisons in territory claimed by the fledgling Confederacy 
might cause enthusiasm for secession to wane, especially in the still-wavering border states. Furthermore, many foreign observers might view the state of affairs as casting doubt on the resolve of Southerners for independence, and so prevent any recognition of the Confederacy by European powers. And besides all of that, many Confederates viewed the situation as an intolerable slight upon Southern honor. All of that's to say that the ongoing crisis over Forts Sumter and Pickens straight away became a thorn in the side of the new Confederate government. And so much as South Carolina had done, Jefferson Davis sent off a three-man commission to Washington, hoping they might somehow be able to negotiate a peaceful surrender of the forts, but realistically Davis knew that the men's real contribution would more likely be buying him much-needed time to prepare for the outbreak of hostilities. Meanwhile, at Fort Sumter, Major Robert Anderson watched as day after day the ring of fortifications around Charleston Harbor grew stronger. The South Carolinians were even working on an ironclad floating battery. Concerned about his dwindling supplies and the increasing likelihood that war might break out, Anderson had asked Governor Pickens if the women and children might be evacuated from the besieged fort. When Pickens agreed, the soldiers' families left Sumter on February 1st, bound for New York City. Anderson's garrison, as well as the remaining loyal workmen, labored to make Sumter as impregnable as possible. Anxious that militia would be landed by boats and storm the fort's walls, the soldiers and workmen secured the front gate and filled the open loopholes on every tier with stone. The backside of Sumter, lined with windows and ventilators, was especially vulnerable to infantry assault, so the men covered the windows with iron shields. Although the -the state-of-the-art five-sided fortification was designed to mount over 130 guns, Anderson's men had only positioned 15 cannons around the fort's walls. That number seemed pitifully small, but Anderson simply didn't have the men or the ammunition for more. The diminishing food supply at Sumter concerned and surprised Anderson. When he'd first transferred the garrison from Fort Moultrie to Sumter in December, he believed he had a six-month supply of staples, but shortly thereafter he realized he had barely enough to last four months. On February 23rd, Anderson received a letter from the War Department. It advised restraint, but offered him no clear direction. Really, it told him little, except Buchanan's lame duck administration was either still undecided on a course of action, or was simply marking time until its term of office expired. But Major Anderson, anxious now over his supply situation, and disturbed by the news that the Confederate government had taken over responsibility for the siege, while Anderson, on the last day of February, sent a message to Washington, saying that now, considering the harbor's improved defenses, at least 20,000 men would be needed to relieve Sumter. Anderson knew that there were only 16,000 men in the entire peacetime U.S. Army, so he realized that his news would come as an unpleasant surprise to Washington. But then Anderson also added a real bombshell to the letter. He said, Oh, and by the way, we'll run out of food here in about a month. What was that? 
it was um, suspenseful, dramatic organ music, like, you know, in old black and white movies. Hmm. Okay. Well, when Anderson's letter... Sorry, go ahead. Okay. When Anderson's bombshell reached Washington, it arrived with impeccable timing, at least as far as James Buchanan was concerned, because it reached the city on March 4th, Inauguration Day. The outgoing president received Anderson's letter shortly before the ceremonies that day and duly passed the problem along to Abraham Lincoln. And so, on the afternoon of March 5th, the day after his inauguration, Lincoln was given Anderson's letter. To say the new president was shocked by the startling news from Charleston would be an understatement. When he assumed office, if Abraham Lincoln had any policy at all to defuse the ongoing crisis, that policy had revolved around avoiding hasty and rash action long enough to allow submerged Unionist sentiment in the South to resurface and reverse the trend towards secession. As historian Brooks D. Simpson explains in his book America's Civil War, quote, Most Republicans, including Lincoln, anticipated eventual reunion through a peaceful resolution of the crisis that did not entail compromising the party principles on slavery. They believed secession was the work of a minority who had seized on the excitement of the moment to ram their program through. Let time pass, these Republicans believed, and cooler heads belonging to Southern Unionists would prevail. By refusing to act hastily, Lincoln hoped the forestall secession in the eight slave states remaining in the Union. At the moment, Unionist sentiment held these states in the Union, but the grasp was a tenuous one that would loosen at the first sign of federally mandated force. Maintain the status quo, however, moderates reasoned, and the secessionist fever would die in the undecided areas and eventually even subside in the seceded states, opening up the best opportunity for peaceful reunion. This belief in the latent power of Southern Unionism would remain a cornerstone of Lincoln's attitude toward the South for some time to come. End quote. So upon assuming office, if Abraham Lincoln had any policy at all, it revolved around avoiding any hasty or rash action and working for time to allow Southern Unionism to assert itself and reverse the trend towards secession. Lincoln believed time was on the Union side. Let enough time pass and passions would cool the cotton states would come to their senses, and the wavering border states would see the folly of secession. But now, on the first full day of his administration, the new president was being told there was a clock ticking. That at besieged Fort Sumter, Anderson only had about a month's worth of provisions. Lincoln was stunned by this news. The president questioned whether there was any reason to doubt Anderson's trustworthiness, but he was soon satisfied the major was an utterly loyal officer. Lincoln then asked for General-in-Chief Winfield Scott's opinion, and Scott, in light of this new information from Anderson, said he now saw only one realistic choice, evacuation of the garrison. At first, a majority of his cabinet also favored abandoning Fort Sumter, but the idea of evacuation and the accompanying implicit recognition of the legality of secession just didn't sit right with Lincoln, and so the president delayed making a decision. As Maury Klein explains in his book, Days of Defiance, quote, Lincoln deliberated over what to do. 
His own sentiments balked at the arguments of his generals and advisers that evacuation was the only sound course. He could not deny their expertise, but neither could he accept their conclusions. End quote. But while Lincoln deliberated over what to do, rumors radiated out from Washington saying that the decision to evacuate Sumter was already a done deal. Major newspapers carried stories that Anderson's command would be withdrawn from Charleston. Jefferson Davis and the Confederate leadership in Montgomery felt a surge of relief at the news. Fueling many of these rumors were the backroom machinations of Secretary of State William H. Seward. During the six weeks between Lincoln's inauguration and the firing on Fort Sumter, Seward would do what he could to seek a peaceful resolution to the crisis, and in seeking that end, he often acted without the president's knowledge or approval. In fact, at first, Seward convinced Southerners that he, rather than Lincoln, was to rule the new administration and set its policy. Seward wrote to his wife, saying, quote, the political troubles of the country are enough to tax the wisdom of the wisest. Fort Sumter is in danger, relief of it practically impossible. The commissioners from the Southern Confederacy are here. These cares fall chiefly on me. End quote. In cabinet meetings, Stewart spoke out against any plans for reinforcing Sumter, saying the fort had no real military value and its evacuation would remove a major source of friction between Washington and the secessionists. Meanwhile, Seward kept stringing the Confederate commissioners along as long as he could. The commissioners had shown up in Washington seeking recognition for their new government and a settlement of the Sumter issue, but no one connected with the new Lincoln administration would meet with them, either officially or unofficially. No one was willing to meet with the Confederate commissioners because Lincoln's stance was that there was no such thing as a Confederate government because the seven southern slaveholding states had not really left the Union, since secession was unconstitutional. Nevertheless, since their arrival in Washington, Seward had kept back-channel communications open with the Southerners, leading them to believe that evacuation of Sumter was imminent. In fact, on March 15th, when a go-between offered to send a letter to Jefferson Davis and asked Seward what he should say about the subject of Fort Sumter, the Secretary of State answered, quote, you may say to him that before that letter reaches him that Sumter will have been evacuated, end quote. Now keep in mind that Seward, in the hope of avoiding confrontation and preserving the peace, was evidently stringing along the Confederates without the president's knowledge or approval. And so Seward grew increasingly frustrated at his inability to steer Lincoln in the direction that he, Seward, wished the president to take. To the Secretary of State's annoyance, as the month of March dragged on, Lincoln continued to delay making a decision about the evacuation of Sumter, and in fact, the President continued to explore options for reinforcing and resupplying the isolated fort. Montgomery Blair, Lincoln's Postmaster General, believed that to give up Sumter was to give up the Union. Blair introduced Lincoln to his brother-in-law, Gustavus V. Fox, a 39-year-old Massachusetts businessman and former naval officer. Fox proposed to send a troop transport escorted by warships to the bar outside Charleston Harbor, and then the reinforcements and supplies could be transferred to smaller tugboats, which could cross the bar after dark and make a dash for Sumter. According to Fox's plan, the warships and the fort's guns could suppress any attempts by Confederate shore batteries to interfere with the tugs. 
Lincoln was intrigued by the idea. At the very least, the president was probably grateful to find someone with a can-do attitude. When most of his advisors and military men were telling him it was either impossible or unwise to sustain Sumter. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. As we mentioned before, Lincoln was inclined to hold on to Sumter, but he was receiving conflicting counsel. So the president, on his own initiative, sent several emissaries to Charleston to appraise matters and report back to him about not only the situation at Fort Sumter, but also about latent Unionist sentiment in South Carolina. In many ways, this enterprise only muddied the waters even more. Since there was no latent Unionist sentiment in South Carolina, and then one of the emissaries, Lincoln's old friend Ward Hill Lehman, well, Lehman apparently led everyone he talked to, including Governor Pickens and Major Anderson, to believe the evacuation of Fort Sumter was imminent. And then another of the emissaries was Gustavus Fox, and when he went out to Sumter and talked with Anderson and told the Major about his plan to reinforce and resupply the fort, well, Anderson wasn't even sure who this civilian was, and thought Fox was a bit nuts with this talk of sending tugboats with supplies and men dashing into the harbor. For Lincoln, the matter came to a head on March 28th when he learned that General Scott wanted to evacuate both Fort Pickens and Sumter. Scott's reasons for urging this were political rather than military. Scott, who seems to have been collaborating to some degree with Seward, wrote, quote, the evacuation of both the forts would instantly soothe and give confidence to the eight remaining slaveholding states and render their cordial adherence to this union perpetual, end quote. The president was amazed and displeased, to put it mildly, to receive such politically motivated advice from his top military advisor. Lincoln knew there was absolutely no reason militarily to give up Fort Pickens in Florida. In fact, two weeks earlier, the president had ordered Scott to reinforce Pickens. On March 28th, after receiving General Scott's stunning recommendation, Lincoln immediately called his cabinet into emergency session after a state dinner that evening. An obviously annoyed president read the cabinet Scott's proposal. All of the men around the table, 
except Seward, of course, were astonished at the General-in-Chief's advice, which amounted to unconditional surrender to the Confederacy. When the President polled the men, the Cabinet reversed its vote of two weeks earlier. Simon Cameron was absent from this emergency session, but now only Caleb Smith, the Secretary of the Interior, sided with Seward, while three others now sided with Montgomery Blair and voted to reinforce and resupply Sumter. On the matter of Fort Pickens, though, all six men supported reinforcing that installation. The President then issued orders for an expedition to Fort Pickens, and he also instructed Fox to ready ships and men for an attempt to resupply and reinforce Sumter. As historian James McPherson points out in his book Battle Cry of Freedom, quote, All of this backed Seward into a corner, his assurances to Southern commissioners, his peace policy of voluntary reconstruction, his ambitions to be premier, all appeared about to collapse. To recoup his position, Seward acted boldly and egregiously. He intervened in the Fort Pickens reinforcement and managed to divert the strongest available warship from the Sumter expedition with unfortunate consequences. Then on April 1st, he sent an extraordinary proposal to Lincoln. In mystifying fashion, Seward suggested that to abandon Sumter and hold Pickens would change the issue from slavery to Union. Beyond that, the Secretary of State would demand explanations from Spain and France for their meddling in Santo Domingo and Mexico and declare war if their explanations were unsatisfactory. Presumably, this would reunite the country against a foreign foe. Whatever policy we adopt, Seward pointed out, it must be somebody's business to pursue and direct it incessantly. He left little doubt whom he had in mind. End quote. McPherson goes on, quote, Lincoln's astonishment when he read this note can well be imagined. Not wanting to humiliate Seward or lose his service, however, the President mentioned the matter to no one and wrote a polite but firm reply the same day. He had pledged to hold, occupy, and possess federal property, Lincoln reminded his Secretary of State, and he could not see how holding Sumter was any more a matter of slavery or less a matter of union than holding Pickens. Ignoring Seward's idea of an ultimatum to Spain or France, Lincoln told him that whatever policy was decided upon, I must do it. A chastened Seward said nothing more about this and served as one of Lincoln's most loyal advisors during the next four years. End quote. Meanwhile, the soldier whom Jefferson Davis had sent to Charleston to take command of the Confederacy's forces there had heard, like everyone else, the rumors that Sumter would be evacuated, and while General Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard hoped the rumors would prove too true, he continued to work at strengthening the fortifications ringing the besieged Federal fort. Beauregard was born near New Orleans in 1818. After being educated at the French school in New York City, he was admitted to the United States Military Academy at West Point and graduated from there in 1838, second in his class. Also graduating from West Point in 1838 was Irvin McDowell, whom Beauregard will face at the First Battle of Manassas in July 1861. Upon graduation from West Point, Beauregard chose to enter the Army of Corps of Engineers. During the Mexican-American War, he served on General Winfield Scott's staff alongside fellow officers Robert E. Lee and George McClellan. 
After the war, Beauregard complained that he hadn't received adequate accolades for his service in Mexico, and he also became disillusioned by the lack of opportunity and potential for advancement in the peacetime army. Between 1853 and 1860, Beauregard served in New Orleans as the superintendent engineer of U.S. customs installations. During that time, he took an active interest in politics, even running unsuccessfully for mayor of New Orleans in 1858. In 1841, he had married a fellow Creole, Marie Laure Villers, but she died giving birth to their second child in 1850. Beauregard then married Catherine Deslond, another Creole belle. Catherine was the sister-in-law of the powerful U.S. Senator from Louisiana, John Slidell. On January 23, 1861, thanks to Slidell's support, Beauregard was appointed superintendent of West Point. But just five days later, after admitting he would follow Louisiana if that state seceded from the Union, Beauregard was removed from his new assignment. He then resigned his commission in the U.S. Army on February 20th, and Jefferson Davis appointed him the first Brigadier General of the Confederate Army on March 1st. Davis straightaway dispatched Beauregard to South Carolina to coordinate the siege of Fort Sumter. Beauregard arrived in Charleston on March 3rd, and over the next two days he toured the harbor's defenses. Beauregard reported, quote, I find a great deal of zeal and energy around me, but little professional knowledge or experience, end quote. He began making changes at once, shifting the ongoing work to better defend from attack by sea, but also better positioning the cannon ringing Fort Sumter. On March 8th, he said that within 10 days, he expected to have the harbor defenses strong enough to prevent any reinforcements from getting to Sumter. While he was a cadet at West Point, Beauregard had been a favorite student of the school's artillery instructor. In fact, that instructor thought so much of Beauregard's potential that he had chosen the bright young cadet from Louisiana to be his assistant. That artillery instructor had been Robert Anderson. Out in the middle of Charleston Harbor at Fort Sumter, Robert Anderson had expected an order to evacuate since Ward Hill Layman's visit, but no orders had come. Anderson had told that other visitor, Fox, that if he put the garrison on half rations, he would have enough provisions to last until April 10th, but then after Fox's departure, no order had come from the War Department telling him to take that drastic step. In fact, he had received no orders from Washington since those of February 23rd, instructing him to act strictly on the defensive and advising restraint. Major Robert Anderson was determined to do his duty, but as the crisis dragged on into its fifth month, the absence of clear orders from Washington continued to vex him. On April 1st, Anderson wrote out a report saying that his remaining supplies would barely last a week, since he had been obliged to share them with the loyal workmen still laboring on the fort's defenses. Anderson warned, quote, "...unless we receive supplies, I shall be compelled to stay here without food," or to abandon this post very early next week. End quote. In Washington, even while Beauregard was strengthening Charles de- Charleston's defenses and Anderson was agonizing over his predicament at Sumter, Abraham Lincoln had realized that time was running out. The president had delayed making a decision as long as possible because he knew that he, like the nation itself, was approaching a point from which there could be no going back, no matter what course he chose. Abraham Lincoln felt a crushing weight of responsibility, knowing that the country that emerged from the other side of this crisis would be much different than the one his generation had inherited from the Founding Fathers. 
Lincoln realized that arguments that had plagued American society for decades were about to be settled once and for all, and much of that depended on what he did or did not do. On April 4th, the President received Major Anderson's letter, stating that his provisions would last only about another week. That same day, Lincoln informed Gustavus Fox that his expedition to relieve Fort Sumter was to proceed. But the nature of that expedition to Charleston had changed subtly, but significantly from Fox's first proposal. It seems that around mid-March, Lincoln began to consider the possibility of sending supplies, but no reinforcements, to Sumter. The idea grew on Lincoln, until he came to favor an attempt to provision the fort with due notice given to Governor Pickens of the peaceable mission to furnish the beleaguered garrison with food. Turning once again to James McPherson, he explains, quote, Instead of trying to shoot its way into the harbor, the task force would first attempt only to carry supplies to Anderson. Warships and soldiers would stand by for action, but if Confederate batteries did not fire on the supply boats, they would not fire back, and the reinforcements would remain on shipboard. Lincoln would notify Governor Pickens in advance of the government's peaceful intention to send in provisions only. If the Confederates opened fire on the unarmed boats carrying food for hungry men, the South would stand convicted of an aggressive act. On its shoulders would rest the blame for starting a war. This would unite the North and perhaps keep the South divided. If Southerners allowed the supplies to go through, peace and the status quo at Sumter could be preserved and the Union government would have won an important symbolic victory. Lincoln's new conception of the resupply undertaking was a stroke of genius. In effect, he was telling Jefferson Davis, Heads I win, tails you lose. It was the first sign of the mastery that would mark Lincoln's presidency. End quote. On April 6th, Lincoln sent a message to Anderson, telling him that provisions and reinforcements were coming and that he should hold out, if possible, until their arrival on the 11th or 12th. The president also sent a State Department clerk to Charleston carrying a note for Governor Pickens. Someone may wonder why Lincoln wasn't communicating directly with Jefferson Davis and the Confederate government down in Montgomery at this point. But that's because, remember, Lincoln didn't believe there was any such thing as a Confederate government, since disunion was an act of rebellion, and so Lincoln wasn't going to officially communicate with Davis, which would grant legitimacy to secession. Exactly. So, Washington's communication was with the governor of what the president considered to be a wayward state, caught up in an act of rebellion. Well, as you would imagine, Lincoln's message to Pickens was carefully worded. It was actually, officially, from Simon Cameron, the Secretary of War. It read, quote, I am directed by the President of the United States to notify you to expect an attempt will be made to resupply Fort Sumter with provisions only, and that, if such attempt be not resisted, no effort to throw in men, arms, or ammunition will be made without further notice or in case of an attack upon the fort, end quote. So again, it's important to notice the message was as brilliant as it was simple. On the surface, it said Lincoln was merely sending food to Sumter. This was a humanitarian mission, not an aggressive or hostile act. But between the lines, the message was that if the mission was resisted, then the responsibility for the outbreak of hostilities would be on the South. Ever the careful lawyer, Lincoln had neatly boxed the Confederates into his options, 
leaving them no opportunity to turn the tables on him as he had just done to them. In Days of Defiance, Maury Klein writes, quote, Lincoln was far too shrewd to believe that the Davis government would let the supplies land, but his intent was not to provoke a clash. He saw no choice but to send relief, come what may. Withdrawing the garrison was not only repugnant to him personally, but also political suicide, nor could he stand by and let hunger force Anderson to surrender. Lincoln ran the risk of war because he saw no other option. At the same time, he turned this disadvantage into a brilliant gambit like a chess player escaping a trap by springing one of his own. Forced to pick between evacuation and war, he offered Montgomery the choice between war and perpetuation of the status quo. End quote. So Fox's expedition is steaming southward, heading for Charleston. Lincoln's notes to Governor Pickens and Major Anderson are on their way to South Carolina, and Jefferson Davis and PGT Beauregard are awaiting developments. Rich! Okay. Anyway, um, that seems like a good place to start to wrap up this week's episode. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is P.G.T. Beauregard, Napoleon in Gray, by T. Harry Williams. Those of you who have read ahead in the story know that Beauregard emerges from the Sumter Bombardment as the Confederacy's first great military hero. And then he also plays a leading role, along with Joe Johnston, in leading the Confederate Army at the first large land battle of the Civil War at First Manassas. But Beauregard is actually a really interesting figure right through the entire war, serving in both the East and West, and then the East, and feuding with Jefferson Davis. And um, then even after the war, he remains one of the more... um colorful ex-Confederates. And anyway, this is a pretty decent biography of a complex character who was one of the Civil War's more dramatic personalities. Um, So there you go. That's P.G.T. Beauregard, Napoleon in Gray by T. Harry Williams. And as always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the epicenter of Civil War podcasting, www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. The epicenter of Civil War podcasting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Well, before we close, we want to thank Spiritwood Music for the use of their song, Midnight on the Water, which is the lovely music you hear at the beginning and end of every show. And thanks to y'all for tuning in to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. And thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.